This is Grow Your Life with Jason Scott Montoya, a podcast with stories and systems to live better and work smarter. Welcome to this episode of Inspirational People. I'm Jason Scott Montoya and I'd like to introduce you to Nancy Klappel. Nancy, welcome. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks. Um, glad to have you here. Glad to uh, get this discussion going. I'm curious to see where we end up. Um, we originally connected through a recent freelancers union event um, through uh, through the, the founders event now called uh, a spinoff that she created called Trupo. Um, and uh, Nancy's been a member of the freelancers union for almost 20 years now. I think that's right. Almost 2001 or so um, since it really first began. Um, she, you're, you're a, um, in New York, you're a New Yorker, um, an architect by training with over 30 years collectively of experience in that arena um, with various incarnations, but now you're a consultant for creative entrepreneurs and professions who work in the built-in environment, including architects, engineers, but not, not limited to them. You're also um, a founder, leader, and collaborator with a 100-member community called Brick and Wonder, which is a relationally-oriented community um, to help uh, firms in the space really tap into relationships and, and create win-win situations and you're helping them to position to be better prepared for the unexpected and this situation we find ourselves in is definitely one of those so thank you for joining us um tell us about you who you are yourself your story what you do and and how we ended up in this interview today (laughs) well in in a moment the first thing though i want to mention is that the the place we connected in particular was a conversation about the mutual aid circle yeah Freelancers reaching out to freelancers. Yeah. And at this moment, those of us who are freelancers, you know, we have a familiarity with moments like this for a lot of reasons. But (laughs) there are a lot of people who don't consider themselves freelancers who suddenly have similar needs. Yes. Um, So it is worth pointing out the connection to the mutual aid circle because that is something that's just getting started. And I think people need to be directed back there um, as to how we can all support each other. Yeah, a good point, because I think with freelancers, I think freelancers are successful because they expect a crisis around every corner, and this just happens yeah. to be a bigger one, but yes. <laughs> a much bigger one. And, um, you know, my um, my business is very much geared towards supporting other members of my industry, and anyone who is involved in the building industry, particularly architects, is yeah. very familiar with recession, mm. because as an industry are so sensitive to recession. So, you know, we all know like 97, you know, 87, 91, <laughs> 97, 2000, 2009. Like we, we know them like the backs of our hands because half the people we know lost their jobs and then you had to yeah. pick up and put it all back together again. And, and, and you so know, some wh- what is it about that industry that makes it so sensitive to the, well, what it is is that it's expensive to build a building and when things get uncertain projects go on hold and Mm. architects get put on ice and projects either get canceled or they get stopped or you know it's like it's very volatile and vulnerable it's it's interesting because building projects if they're started it's very hard to stop them without tremendous losses Mm -hmm. so certain things have to go forward but the design itself can be stopped before the construction begins without tremendous financial vulnerability to the investors. And that's, I'm not an economist and I am not a financial (laughs) expert, but there's this very close connection between the design work and the paying for the construction that stop one, you can conserve more of the assets for the other without making yourself vulnerable to great losses. So So with such a volatile, but probably rewarding industry, how did you end up in it to begin with? Well, I got to say that when I got in it to begin with, I never thought about these things. <laughs> People who become architects don't think about the financial aspects of it, or at least yeah. not when I was young. <laughs> um, you know, I grew up in a historic neighborhood, in a historic house. My mom is a fashion designer, and mm-hmm. we just always noticed and, and were tuned into the beautiful buildings and interesting spaces of, you know, first New York City and then broader yeah. around us. And, um, through a process of steps, proving to myself that I really did want to get further involved year by year in pursuing a career in architecture. First, I studied architecture in college. I went to a university that did not have a major or a program at that time, although they had a junior year away program, which 
unfortunately was in New York City, which to some people is very exotic, but for me, <laughs> it's like, oh, goody, I get to go home for the year. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I did not live in my mom's house. I, um, I did go to New York for this junior year program away. I went to Brown as an undergrad, and now they do have a program connected to the Rhode Island School of Design, but okay. it was too late in the game for me. And after this program, I went back and finished my degree, studied American civilization, American industrial culture, and architecture in a sort of self-created degree program, which was how we did it in the okay, 80s. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I took a year and I worked for an architect who was kind of famous in the Boston area, William Ron, Okay. Um, in a really you know, scut work kind of job, which is what your first job is like, you know, yeah. the $6 an hour model building, <laughs> you know, <laughs> kind of job. And then I went to graduate school and yeah. got a professional degree, master's of architecture at Harvard okay. and spent a couple of years practicing, but just a couple, you know, there's a huge internship period that follows your training, professional training in school that um, allows you to acquire all the real hard skills of building a building. Yeah. You don't learn much about in school. Yeah. And that's where you kind of open your eyes and see what it's about. And um, at that point, I was a couple of years in, starting out intern again, low man on the totem pole, and a recession hit, and I lost my job. Mm. That's what happens. You know, last hired, first fired, easiest person to get rid of has gotten rid of, and then up the chain until you're kind of cutting just at the bare bones. And I'm sure people are very familiar with that right now. Yeah. Um, so in that moment, it was well before ubiquitous internet anything. Yeah. It was the 90s. And I was sitting on my living room floor with the paper copy of the New York Times <laughs> before me, and I found an ad for... Uh, director of business development for a big mm. international firm, architecture yeah. firm, very well-known firm, but it didn't say who it was. It was a blind ad. It was through a headhunter. And I thought, well, what the hell? And I applied for the job. Yeah. Never thinking that I would be <laughs> offered this job. And through a series of steps, the most hilarious being when I was sitting in a windowless room with nine white men in white shirts, <laughs> and they asked me if I, you know, had the temerity to make a cold call. <laughs> and I said to them, well, it, couldn't be any harder than sitting here in person with all you. No problem. <laughs> and they hired me, and I was given the job of director of business development for the New York office of Skidmore Owings and Merrill. Okay, wow. That's a familiar name to you, but it's a very big, prestigious firm, famous for the new uh, World Trade Center Tower okay. One. Wow. World Trade Center Number Seven. Uh, the Air Force Academy is one of their mm -hmm. most famous projects in Colorado Springs, airports, skyscrapers, okay. famous buildings all over the world. A lot of work in China these days. And I spent a couple of years leading the business development effort in the New York office as a complete novice. Well, <laughs> Learning as you go. <laughs> oh my God, learning as I go. Um, and I had this incredible opportunity. I, I think I brought in, you know, one or two projects in my uh. tenure there. But the main project I brought in I ended up going to an event, meeting a very senior person at the City University of New York. Okay. And I was able to connect and bring in a project wow. that turned into an $800 million opportunity <laughs> for the firm that hit pay dirt after September 11th, oh, when wow. everything was shutting down and they were hungry, they got this $800 million job. Wow. And, um, you know, you don't always win, but when you win, you win big. Yeah, that's that's a long, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a big one. They kept a lot of people employed from, you know, 2001 through 2006, and other things yeah. were going on, certainly. Um, but I spent a couple of years at SOM, and then did I you, Did you have any regrets that you had shifted from architect to, to, to the business development, or did you, were so you kind of uh, grateful for the pivot? Had, I certainly had anxieties about yeah. it, uh, but I didn't have regrets. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like at the moment I made that choice, that was a hard choice to make. And it was a very nervous making choice. Yeah. But, um, in, I think you, you proceed in part by your head and in part by your heart and in part by your gut. Yeah. And my gut knew it was the right choice because I was always a little um, timid yeah. and ill at ease mm -hmm. in the very difficult and very... Um, detail-oriented skills of how do you create the physical world? You know, you're yeah. building a building. There's a lot of detail that goes into getting the section right. If, yeah. You've got to keep the water out. You've got to keep the rain off your head. You've mm -hmm. got to keep 
the sun from infiltrating and and the way that the layers are built up and and detailed how the pieces go together it's hard yeah. and it wasn't to shy away from hard work it was really rather identifying that my own skills are more oriented towards the business end yeah. than towards the design end and in school mm -hmm. you really don't get much exposure to the business mm -hmm. end yeah. and you learn that the way you know buildings get built in the world you have to deal with clients it's a service industry it's not about the independent genius putting yeah. their ideas out there in the world sort of beating a path to their door as they lead us to believe when we're getting our education <laughs> yeah. well, like oh we're all so many geniuses well it's not <laughs> yeah no it's so, interesting because i my, my degree is in 3d animation uh, you know, like Toy Story kind of stuff, and uh, yeah. and I'm I'm further from that than I than I could be, but but that's the similar idea that I experienced was, is that instead of being the creative, which I am creative in in ways that I need to, be, but it's really about orchestrating and directing the creative process and people than it is about actually doing a lot of the tactical stuff myself. Well, and then also putting it into the world. Yeah, publishing because it. People don't, you know, they don't think about how it's going to be put into the world they just think it's going to be in the world they're going to have that opportunity and the reality is they're not and it for me it goes back to this moment when i was sitting in school and one of my uh teachers who was my primary design critic at the time he came to my desk and we were talking about the the project i was working on and my ability to express myself graphically you know my <laughs> ability to draw and at the time it was hand drawing with graphite pencils oh, yeah. because yeah. it was pre AutoCAD, pre any sort of digital graphic interfaces. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there were some people who had an incredible facility with the yeah. graphic media drawing. I was not one of them. Yeah. And, you know, I could sometimes draw and my sketches were somewhat expressive, but the actual technical aspects of creating beautiful expressive drawings that communicated architecture, I was not the best at it. And my design critic said to me, you know, you could have the best idea in the whole world, but if you can't communicate it to me, I don't care. And yeah. then he bounced off. And, you know, the, the importance of making people care is multifaceted. And the communication yeah. is multifaceted. And a lot of architects get the graphics right, and they get the yeah. drawings right. And knowing how to understand and read drawings is important, and I can certainly do that. Um, but the, the translation, that yeah. allows an architect to communicate successfully with a client who does not have those skills mm -hmm. is really important because yeah. they don't speak the same language and you need the, the translator piece that <laughs> allows the two entities that are essential to communicate at a very high level. You know, mm -hmm. the architect needs to communicate with the client in a way the client knows exactly what it is that the architect means because what's really obvious but also hidden is that when people commission architects to build buildings yeah. large or small in many cases it's the greatest investment they're ever going to make in their whole life mm -hmm. and they're taking a chance because they're buying they're literally buying something that they're not going to see until it's ready mm. and they've spent an enormous amount of money yeah <laughs> it'd be um, too late to change anything then <laughs> yeah and it's it's I wouldn't say speculative, but there's a lot of trust yeah. and there's a lot of um, suspension of disbelief or need to understand what it is you're buying on the front end, which you're not going to see till way in on the back end. And it's a lot of money. Yeah. And so the extent that you can communicate to diminish risk and to create a sense that you're selling or providing something of value, that makes the process more successful. Mm. And that's a big yeah. missing piece. You don't get that in school. So essentially, that's what I do with my clients. I enable them to communicate at the highest possible level, to speak to their clients in a language that clients understand, to differentiate themselves from competitors, Yeah, communicating value and confidence, and to get people who are not graphically literate or architecturally literate to understand what it is they're going to yeah. get. And hopefully to develop an excitement about it too. Yeah, an adventure that they're on. Yeah. So how does how does that put us in to the current? We're we're in this pandemic. There are so many uncertainties. It's the the timeline is is unknown, probably longer than we all hope for. But how does your industry intersect with this? How does your role as a you know a, as a consultant to these companies 
you know, how should we be looking at this situation right now? What should we be doing? Should sure. we be panicking? Should we be sticking our head in the sand? Should we be doing something proactive? Tell us, tell so, us more. I would say one should never panic and one should never <laughs> stick their head in the sand yep. because there's no upside. Yeah. It gets <laughs> and the extent to which you can, you know, calm down and create a path, knowing that the path is not going to be trouble-free mm -hmm. and it's not going to be a linear straight path that goes up in a constant arc or constant yeah. line, that's not going to happen. However, um, there are things one can do to plan for an unknown future. Mm -hmm. You have to think about, you know, what can I know? What can I affect? And how do I take the steps I can take now so that when whatever the unknown future reveals itself to be, I am best positioned to jump into it quickly. Yeah. Um, because if you wait and try and figure it out at that late moment, your momentum will not exist and you'll, it'll take longer and there'll be people ahead of you and you'll be, you know, you'll be running at the back of the pack. Yeah. And um, so it is very uncertain. And I will tell you, it's very discouraging yeah. to speak to people and hear about billions and billions of dollars worth of projects being canceled or stopped. You know, all of the public design work in New York City has been stopped. Mm. I think that was a very unwise move on the part of the city of New York because you can understand stopping construction work, but yeah. not design work. Because when they're ready to start construction work, they'll be that much further behind the, the curve mm. in that they'll first have to do the design work. And yeah. People can do design work from home. People can continue mm -hmm. on. And that the, way, when it is time, they can just go instead of having right. more delays. And the, the people that are going to suffer and lose jobs and the firms that are going to shrink from, you know, X number of employees to 0.2 X or 0.5 X, you know, that's going to be real damage. And typically what happens in recessions is that architects, because they are so vulnerable, they find other things to do. Yeah. So when I finished graduate school in the early 90s, it was the moment that the internet was just beginning to exist and design for the internet, you know, the creation of what became websites, yeah. it didn't exist. And many of my classmates became, in some cases, really well-known interactive designers. My best friend became a world-famous interactive designer. She's oh, a rock star. Yeah. Um, but she started as an architect. And the, the bottom line there is that when the architecture industry wakes up again, there's a huge gap in the available talent. So mm. if you're looking for a 55-year-old architect right now with 30 years of experience, when things were really busy six weeks ago, um, you had a hard time finding that person because yeah. the pool of trained architects in the early 90s Many of us found other things to do, like me, mm. like my friend Lisa, we, we had to. And in some cases, we found good things to do, really good yeah. things to do, that are without some of the risks of being a practicing architect or without some of the burdens of being a practicing architect, yeah. which is not to say it's not worth practicing architecture. It's great to practice architecture. There are yeah. some amazing people who do amazing work, but it, it's hard. Yeah. And it will happen in this recession, there'll be a shakeout and the number of experienced or mid-level professionals will decrease. And mm -hmm. when we're ready to put the world back together, there won't be as many people to do it and it's going to be harder to find them. Yeah. Um, so I forget where we started with this Well, question. yeah, so just, I'm, you know, you're in the heart of the rest of the U.S. is kind of looking to New York right now in terms of it's the hot spot and, and you're in the middle of this. How should we be looking at this, you know? So I think that, you know, broadly, not just in the building industry, yeah. you have to really say to yourself, what can continue? What is the largest spectrum of things that can continue yeah. in terms of keeping the economy alive, keeping yeah. people working, keeping people engaged, keeping people's minds active, keeping whatever can be continued mm -hmm. going on so that when we're more broadly ready to get other things up and running, it's not like starting a completely frozen machine. It's starting a, a machine that's running on a lower speed. Yeah. In my own work and in my own approach to my clients, the way I like to speak to them is to say, listen, you know, what can you do that's going to benefit you later on? It's going to be competitive and hard to get jobs, yeah. but how can you best position yourself? And to 
get right to the chase, I believe that those firms that can communicate best yeah. will be best positioned. I mean, in, in my experience, most architecture firms I work with, and I, I refer to the ones that are highly competent, yeah. uh, because the ones that are sort of on life support intellectually, I don't spend a lot of time dealing with firms like that. Yeah. Um, you know, highly competent designers, everybody has something somewhat unique to mm -hmm. what they do in my experience. However, most of them are not capable of communicating that uniqueness. Yeah. And so if you can uh, develop the muscle of mm -hmm. understanding what it is that you're doing that's unique to what you do and communicate it clearly and at a high level of definition, that's a great advantage. So I'm working yeah. with my clients now to sharpen up their messaging and to best present the work that they've completed and to understand how to create templates so that as they are delivering work, which no one's doing now, they can record the milestones of that work in a way that best showcases the accomplishments of that work. And in some cases, that's how do you deliver value in architectural work? You know, one of the things that's really been discouraging for generations as an architect is that architects create a lot of value in the world. A yeah. lot of value for other people. Mm -hmm. They don't get compensated for it. They don't get recognized for it. It's really exasperating. And part of that is because they're not really good at claiming it. Mm -hmm. And if you can communicate and establish and validate and prove that you've delivered value to your clients, you will have a much better time getting recognized and compensated for it. Yeah. And incrementally, we can improve the fortunes of the industry. You know, there's this yeah. joke. I don't know this joke, but it's like every architect knows this joke. It's like, you know, gallows humor. Architect inherits a million dollars and someone <laughs> says, you know, what are you going to do? And, and he says, with no irony, he says, oh, I'm going to run my practice until the money runs out. <laughs> yep. People do it. Yeah. People do it. And it's like, it should not be, but it is. Yeah. So I am working with my clients to help them understand how to record the value they deliver in the day-to-day -day process of delivering a building. How do you cut time from a schedule? How do you create value in using different materials to save energy? How do yeah. you empower your client by building a more valuable product that they will then transfer to different ownership at a higher price than they paid to build it or lots of other things yeah and then how do you increase and elevate the understanding of what architects bring to the world and bring to the marketplace mm -hmm. um and it, it's it's very empowering in particular i like to work with clients to develop a culture across the firm okay. that involves every single employee from the receptionist or the most junior person through the most senior principal because yeah. you know as a freelancer and as a small firm entrepreneur everybody knows the head of the firm is not able to feed 10 mouths or six mouths mm -hmm. or 15 mouths yeah easily without other people participating you can only be in the number of places one person can be in you can only communicate with mm -hmm. the number of people one person encounters yeah and so to the extent that you can craft a message and socialize it across your team and make them feel comfortable communicating it impromptu in casual situations to hand yeah. it off to more experienced or more senior people mm -hmm. several steps in, the better off everyone's going to be. And over time, you're going to train a group of much more well-rounded, complete yeah. professionals yeah. who can then not only participate more effectively as a member of your team, but then go off into the future and, and create their own teams and entities yeah. with a skill set that allows them to thrive. Yeah. And, you know, that's not unique to the building industry. That's not unique to architecture, yeah. contracting, engineering, construction. Yeah. A lot of the creative. That's universal. Yeah. So um, a lot of uh, on my blog and, and a lot of the work that I create, it's, I kind of focus on this idea of working smarter and, and living better and culture has a way of sort of intersecting those, those two pieces. And, and so you're focusing in on that. What, why that approach? Why not? I mean, there are a lot of consultants, I, I suspect in your spaces there, there are in mine. Why, why is culture so important to you? Um, as opposed to other things that are done and, and, and what, what is culture if you were to kind of nail it down or 
try to nail that jello down. <laughs> so, you know, I think that depending on, you know, my mood when someone asks me, <laughs> completely different answer every time <laughs> or maybe not completely different but largely different and i'm yeah. thinking today about how you know how you put yourself into the world especially at this moment this the spirit of generosity mm. is probably the most uh resonant piece of culture in my mind right now mm. the way we embrace each other the way we empower each other the way we support each other and not so you're just or, saying you're saying generosity not just in finance financial right. generosity, but in our you know, time and the way we treat people. Generosity. And I'll give you yeah. a particular example. So early in my career, I have a colleague, her name is Kirsten. I'll use just her first name. She'll know who she is if she ever sees <laughs> it. She is somebody who will tell anybody anything she knows to help them. Yeah. With very few exceptions. If there's something that's proprietary of interest to her firm, she'll hold back only what she needs to hold back, but she'll share absolutely anything and absolutely everything to support and empower the next person. Yeah. And that's what I mean, mm -hmm. because she knows that that is the best way to put yourself into the world. And I know this too, because, you know, the gathering of information, the fostering of relationships, the, yeah. the creation of a network, a, a, firm, robust, you know, tightly knit web of a network that allows mm -hmm. you to make one phone call or two phone calls and get exactly what you need in five minutes. Yeah. That's how you do it. And, mm -hmm. you know, like people think about what is a meaningful and sustainable advantage one can create as any kind of professional. Yeah. It's not a uh, price because someone can always undercut your price. Yeah. It's not innovation because there's always going to be the next innovation. Yeah. It's relationship. If you have someone who works with you, who wants to work with you, you have a tight, successful bond yeah. there that's going to connect you to others mm. who are going to broaden and strengthen your network. And that speaks to culture. Mm. So, you know, I think particularly in this moment, the extent to which we can, in the spirit of generosity, uh, reach out to people however we can yeah knowing that we may not have everything they need but something that we have is going to help yeah that's what you do like mm -hmm. why would you even think about it twice yeah and the fact that someone else might return the favor then the person you're reaching out to great Just yeah put it there and and that's a good point is it it's also a time to really test what the authenticity of our generosity is so if someone truly is generous they'll be generous even when it's scarce versus if that's now, right. if yeah that's right and i'll give you another example like i am continuing to work for my clients and at the moment i have no idea who's going to pay me i have yeah. the ones who i think are going to pay me and i have a number of bills in people's hands and i certainly hope they're going to pay me because if they're not it's going to be a tough spring it's going to yeah. be a really tough spring and a tough summer um but to a certain extent i will continue to work for them and especially the small firms mm -hmm. because why wouldn't I? Yeah. I have the time. It keeps my mind engaged. And when things return to some sort of normal, that will stand me well. The people yeah. I have been generous to will remember that generosity. And it's not about the payback. It's yeah. just about how you put yourself in the world. And that's how I choose to put myself in the world. It feels yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. Oh, you're not going to pay me? Okay. Um, I'll talk to you in six months. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's I understand. Yeah, as in, in, in my book, Path of Freelancer, I talk about the idea of one of the things about being a successful freelancer is having agenda-free relationships and mm -hmm. pursuing those for their own sake, not because of what we get out of them, but because yeah. of what we can put into them. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, you always get something out of them. You yeah. just don't know on the front end what it's going to be or where it's going to come from, but that's okay. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So that's a, that's a good um, a pivot to talk about, okay, now we talk about mentoring and teaching and guiding others you know how do we equip and empower um, other individuals that we come across people we know people we love people we work with um, I mean it's it's one thing to kind of get ourselves grounded but once we've done that how do we then take that to, to others more intentionally so, to quote a cliche <laughs> <laughs> by any means necessary you yeah. know like it's going to be different for everybody. I started a mentoring seminar series yeah. in September with one of my clients. And we started it for a very particular reason. She had applied for fellowship in the AIA, the professional organization nationally for architects. And, and they had, she had applied based on her service to the institution. And they said, no, 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 you haven't done enough. 
And we were like, what do you mean you haven't done enough? So we came up with a reason or in a way for her to do more. And we created this mentoring seminar series in particular to mentor women entering the profession. Because what's happened in architecture and in other industries, I'm sure as well, while women are beginning to be represented in school and early on in the -hmm. profession in equal numbers, when you get 10, 12, 15 years in, they fall away. And when you look for senior professionals to be partners in big firms or founders of their own firms, there aren't that many of them. And mm-hmm. headhunters I know say, you know, yes, our clients want to hire women to senior roles, but they can't find the women. Yeah. And so we have decided to create a, a series that empowers young women by letting them learn from more senior, more experienced women. Yeah. We reached out to a small group, 10 very accomplished women architects, primarily or really exclusively actually in New York. And we created a um, model that was easy for people to participate in, that was very low cost, and that could be propagated across the city, the state, the country with very little effort. We created an outline, we're spreading it to different chapters of the AIA. Mm -hmm. And what we've done is we've asked two very accomplished women to speak uh, together about some experience of great significance to the trajectory of their careers. And it can be anything. It can be about working on a job site. It can be about being a partner. It can be about raising children. It can be about getting through internship, anything, getting licensed. Um, I, unfortunately I was supposed to deliver the last seminar alongside a woman named Claire Weiss, who's a renowned architect in New York. Um, And we're still scrambling to get that to be a web-based seminar. Mm -hmm. I mean, the positives are that we'll have more people involved. The negatives are that we will not have a live presentation. Yeah. I had really been looking forward to, but you know, we then open it up to young women within the first five years of their career and have a live networking, mentoring seminar together. Yeah. And we ask the more senior women to just make themselves available indefinitely to speak to whoever wants to reach out to them. Yeah. And answer whatever question you can answer. And I'll tell you, you know, two weeks ago, one of the women I met in the most recent seminar got in touch and said, I, I got laid off. Mm. And I immediately reached out to her and said, listen, I don't know what I can do in terms of helping you connect with a new job right now. However, we are here for you. And we immediately reached out to the entire network and said, you know, we will answer any question we can answer. We will keep the network moving and robust because this is how you create the the i don't know the safety net that lets people continue to move forward in their career even when Mm -hmm. things slow down drastically and we don't know how it's going to play out but we know it's going to help so you know we are mentoring the next generation of young women architects so that they don't leave yeah and stop practicing architecture yeah which is the problem you mentioned earlier 10 15 years down the line we want to see parity and if not parity, we want to be approaching parity. We want to see yeah. women's work as architects presented and discussed yeah. as any other work, not singled out as women's work, but just as work. Yeah. It is so rewarding to see the incredible design work women are doing in Europe and in Asia and in America and big buildings, you know, conventions yeah. and airports and major retail and affordable housing and yeah. skyscrapers. We had who was the technical director at SOM who managed the construction of the World Trade Center Tower One as a 37. I mean, my God. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. So, yeah, you know, you want those stories to be out there. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so I guess a lot of people, you know, would look at the context you're describing and go, you know what, that's just how it is. Just have to live with it. But you seem to be someone that's like, no, let's change it to be better. What, what compels you to, to do that in, in this instance or, or across the board? So that's a good question. <laughs> um, I think that you want to empower people to feel like regardless of the situation, there is some position of strength. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there really is no choice. <laughs> If you allow yourself to feel defeated and to live in a position of weakness, you're not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel good. It spirals down from there. 
Mm -hmm. And we can support each other, we can strengthen each other, we can assist each other, we can create something positive. It may be a smaller positive thing, it may be a slower moving positive thing, but it's so important that we keep doing it right now. Um, and just be there for each other. I mean, unfortunately, mm -hmm. we can only be there for each other in virtual environments right now. Yeah. And I, I mean, that extends to professional, extends to personal. I think about my mom. My mom is in Ohio. I'm in New York. Yeah. She's doing great. Like, I speak to her every day. She's 85 <laughs> years old, and she's like the most spry with it together 85-year-old you'll ever meet. Yeah. But she's by herself. And like the other day, she didn't sound so good. For the first time, <laughs> mostly she sounds good. And I'm thinking, okay, my mom's okay. Um, but, you know, we have to be there for each other because – you don't want your friend or your sister or your mother or your colleague to be despondent when they don't yeah. have to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very easily, we can very easily fall into despair right now. And, um, and so it's reaching out and that generosity that you shared. Yes. So I want to shift a little bit, talk a, a little bit more specifically about stories and systems. Um, you know, stories have a powerful way, narrative have a powerful way even to the culture aspect that you talked about of informing how we see the world and how it matters. Um, I recently read something um, from one of my clients about how I think it was in the seventies and eighties when there was just a lot of economic turmoil and problems. A lot of the big companies that we know, I think Home Depot was one of them, were actually born out of that crazy season. And so this is actually an opportunity where there's an opportunity for new things to, to be birthed out of this. And so that was an impactful story. Um, but what are some stories that have impacted you or, or that, uh, that you share with others, you know, parables, fables, it could be your experiences, um, sure. fictional or nonfiction, but that have had an impact on you? So earlier in the week, I posted an article to my LinkedIn profile by James Sawicki. Okay. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but he used to write <laughs> an economics, okay. economics column in the New Yorker every week, every other week. Really good. And this particular article was about the depression and Kellogg's versus post. Okay. Yeah. And you know, who kept investing in R and D yeah. and who kind of pulled up and didn't. Oh, okay. And how the people who made the investment in the R and D were so much better prepared to hit the ground running later on and thrived. Interesting. And it, it's really about the positive attitude that, has you continuing to invest or continuing to support or continuing to mentor or continuing to craft your story and tell it mm -hmm. uh, rather than be the ostrich and stick your head in the sand. Yeah. Um, and, you know, presenting the evidence of the benefits of doing that. Yeah. So that's, that's one thing I would relate to. And anyone who wants to go to my LinkedIn page, they'll see it. Um, can't remember the name of the article right now, but it's, yeah. it's a good yeah, yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, so I guess in terms of, um, you mentioned, you know, the, the, the story of, of that gal that you had reached out to the architect um, who had lost her job. So yes. that, you know, that was another example. Um, how, do, how do stories matter? You mentioned culture. How does this affect when you're talking with your, your clients? Are there, do you use story when you're communicating? You talk oh, about communication being a big problem. Absolutely. Tell me more about so that. Another example, and this is a particular one. So couple months back in the context of a brick and wonder meeting I met another founder who I had yeah. not met before it's a fairly new founders group and he leads a um, 12 person firm with yeah. three other partners yeah and they do a lot of work in the restaurant industry mm -hmm. um, and some really high profile um, manufacturing project yeah. and super cool firm <laughs> um, they have gotten some sort of stealth notice yeah. and there's a bunch of PR that's beginning to, to recognize their work. And we were talking and he said, you know, people are starting to recognize our work and write about us, but we would like to be able to control the story a little mm. bit. How do we get out in front of whatever people are going to write about okay. us? And we were talking about how people do PR and pursue PR. PR is yeah. very expensive. Yeah. Hiring a PR firm to represent your architecture firm, it could be, you know, typically they want a minimum of six months 
contract mm -hmm. to do it. And it's a minimum of five to $8,000 a month. And most architecture firms can't afford that. Yeah. And so I developed a model whereby firms can create sort of mini press kits that mm -hmm. enable them to collect all of the elements of a story yeah. of a project. Um, and then to really think about specific storylines, which mm -hmm. are ways of telling the story of a project to relate to and appeal to the needs of a particular audience. Mm -hmm. um, so a particular project, let's say it's a restaurant project, there could be a craft story that appeals to people who make highly crafted artworks or components of the building. Yeah. There could be a fine dining story. There could be a financial story. There could be a real estate story. And what you want to do is begin thinking about how you develop the elements to outline those stories in a paragraph yeah. with particular but vivid points so that mm -hmm. you can then put it out there to people who are always looking for content. You know, one of the mm. things that the internet has enabled is there's a lot of content out there that typically journalists would have to develop all that content with their own legwork and yeah. wouldn't want to diminish the importance of journalists doing that. However, yeah. There are so many opportunities to kind of seed the clouds with mm -hmm. content. Yeah. And if you can think ahead of time about the storylines of whatever it is you're working on and who it's important to, yeah. you're ahead of the game because you can attract the interest of some of those people who are putting content out there. You know, in a way, I seeded the clouds by participating in the mutual aid <laughs> meeting with you and you picked up the phone and called me and said, hey, let's have this conversation and you're putting yeah. content out there about me. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, I yeah. guess that's yeah. Well, stuff. so so I'm curious. Are there any thoughts that you have about how can stories help us in this current health and economic challenge? Um, any any thoughts there? Sure. Yeah. Sure. I I always think about um, examples in yeah. the story I, that come to mind. It's just the way my mind works. But through Brick and Wonder, there's a, a guy I'm working with who manufactures and um, distributes building materials that are highly sustainable so that the buildings we build are more and more environmentally appropriate yeah. and leave a lighter mark um, and diminish further and further the need for and the use of energy. Yeah. And, um, God, I'm losing my train of thought. Hello. <laughs> yeah, so, just stories about relevance to the situation. We yeah. were talking last week and he was saying how he can uh, – direct his manufacturers to manufacture personal protective equipment mm -hmm. and not anything and everything, but some things. Yeah. And he wanted to connect with people who are in need of that equipment yeah. and others who are designing or redeploying their own design mm -hmm. capabilities. So an architect I know, um, a firm I know based in Brooklyn that works out of the Brooklyn Navy Yard that makes a lot of things. They have a, a pretty substantial industrial setup alongside their design setup. Yeah. They're manufacturing PPE. They're making masks and they've designed a, um, an exam booth that okay. allows doctors to examine patients with less physical exposure to droplets yeah. and, mm -hmm. you know, people's breath. Um, and so I've connected Brooks, the guy who has the manufacturing capability uh, to make building materials, to C2 Studio, the firm that's yeah. designing, and in some cases manufacturing, but at a much smaller scale, PPE, so that, you know, if they can meet a need for a hospital that needs more masks, and are they the same as what the hospital would have bought two months ago? No, they're not. But are they going to help get people through a crisis? Maybe. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's part of the story. Yeah. You can Brooks to Amy to Albany Medical Center and suddenly yeah. people in Albany Medical Center are a little bit safer. Yeah, and there's something about um, going second in the sense that if someone goes first and I can see their example and I can hear their story, it equips me to, to then take steps in my own life. Sometimes it's hard for us yeah. to be the pioneer, but if someone goes first, it allows us to, to go second more easily. Well, and you see a model that mm -hmm. relates to what you're thinking about such that it shifts the way you think about what you're doing or what you're thinking about. Yeah. So let's, let's shift to systems. Um, you're more oriented towards relational systems, but there's still types of systems that you've talked about. You talked about culture. You yes. know, what are some systems you use that are helpful for your work or the clients that you work with? And can any of those systems help us in this current 
uh, crisis situation? So I'm a firm believer in um, communicating everything to your team, Mm. not holding back information, not keeping things close to the vest. And again, like the woman I spoke with, spoke about Kirsten earlier, there are a few things that you have to hold back, but the the number of things that you hold back is very small and should be very small. And you want your team to have the fullest understanding of what's going on at all mm-hmm. times. And, and why, what's, why is your posture? Because there are some people that would take, you only tell the, the least amount you need to tell. And you're so I'm getting saying, that. okay, so yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want an all hands on deck approach mm. that's going to drive information and drive energy into your firm, yeah. two people or 22 people or 222 people, people need to understand why they're doing what they're doing and it's got to be meaningful to them. And if they see the whole picture, the likelihood that they're going to embrace it is greater. And so I like to create a full team business development culture, but then alongside that, I like to create a work plan that calls on everybody to do something. Okay. And what the junior most person is going to do is a small thing. Yeah. What the senior most person is going to do is a big thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, as you get more senior in organizations, as you become a partner in a firm, as you develop your own entity, your job changes in that you're not working in your business as much as you're working on your business. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not delivering work as much as you are seeking work. Yeah. Because the junior most person is not in the position to do the front end business development and see, seek the work mm-hmm. in the same way. And so you create a pyramid where, you know, you have the smaller stuff building up to the top and let's say the junior most person spends a half an hour a week reviewing information that then is fed to the next level that allows that level of person to interact with a collaborator that helps someone further up the chain identify an opportunity that is then pursued very directly by the person who the most connections and the most experience. Mm-hmm. And as you create that culture, um, what you find is that the whole machine is working. I mean, it's, it's like a, it's like rowing, you know, you have <laughs> yeah. a of eight people rowing and a coxswain who's calling out the strokes. Mm. Everybody's going towards the same goal. Yeah. yeah. And with a work plan, you know, if you assign particular tasks to individuals every single day or every single week, and then you validate it against a budget that yeah. needs for those tasks. If you haven't spent the money, you know they haven't been executed. Yeah. And if they haven't been executed, you know. <laughs> you're yeah, not and, and I guess the the if you don't uh, enact this type of system, it, that's where that joke that you mentioned comes to, comes out. Is you'll just spend all your money and have nothing well, yeah. to show for it. <laughs> yeah, or you won't spend your money and you'll have nothing to show for it. <laughs> yeah. And. So, you know, as long as you keep moving, as long as you keep driving more information and more knowledge through your organization, you're going to get somewhere. And Mm -hmm. if you're doing a little thing every day, if you're spending five minutes or 10 minutes or half an hour, or some days on a big day, you spend an hour or you spend a half a day once in a while. Yeah. When you look back over the course of the year, you've done a lot of stuff. Yeah. Whereas if you try in a week's time to do that same amount of stuff because you haven't been doing everything consistently, you can't do it. And there's yeah. no value to doing it. It just doesn't work. Yeah. So yeah, it's the grasshopper and the ant. You know, the <laughs> gets you where you want to go. Yeah. And while it's not always intuitive or it's not always fun or it's not always um, the most obvious first move, when you get people engaged in doing things like that, um, it yeah. has an impact. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned the grasshopper and the ant. You know, that's a great parable. To, um, and, and I think in a lot of cases you know, we're, we're in a situation where we kind of figure out which of the two we were, right? But my question to you is, let's say you were the grasshopper, um, you weren't stalking, you weren't doing the right things, is it too late? Can you adapt in the middle of the crisis? Well, you know, we're living in a smaller world right now. Yeah. In parallel to the bigger world. Mm-hmm. It's gotten really quiet. And, or certainly quieter. And I think we all need to look at our smaller stage or our smaller world or the smaller impacts we can have and be deliberate about having those smaller impacts rather than saying, oh, I'm just going to take a nap or, oh, I'm just going to go take a walk or do whatever it is that one could in a discouraged way do as the world gets small. 
because it's the accumulation of the things we can do that will allow us to reemerge onto the bigger stage yeah. when it's time to do that. And it will keep us from being discouraged, depressed, uh, disconnected, mm-hmm. um, you know, all those negative emotions. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know about you. I'm busy. I have a lot to do every day. It doesn't mean <laughs> funny, but I am busy. And at the end of the day, when I go back to my partner and spend the evening with him, you know, I have more to talk about. I have more life in my head and in my voice. He's got the things that he's involved in. If we were just sort of hanging out and doing nothing, you'd be like, okay, what are we doing now? What are we talking about now? Oh, let's watch another movie. I've watched two movies in the past (laughs) month. Like I'm tired at the end of the day. I have other stuff to talk about. I'm not sitting there in front of the TV. Mm-hmm. or absorbing a ton of news for that matter because yeah. oh my god I couldn't take it. <laughs> yeah yeah so any anything on the on the personal side in terms of systems the things that you do uh, you mentioned a couple there um just to to stay sane um you know our life a lot of our life is work but we have outside mm-hmm. of that so how do you um you stay healthy and happy and moving forward you know individually I'm not sure how to answer that right now. Like, <laughs> walk every day. So I, I left New York City yeah. a month ago. Yeah. I'm very fortunate to have been able to do that. I'm up in the Hudson Valley about two and a half hours north. Yeah. And I'm in a very, uh, very open rural area where there is no density of population. Yeah. Which is not to say we can be cavalier about doing whatever we want. We can't. However, I can take a walk every day. Yesterday, I climbed a small mountain with a friend. We climbed the equivalent of 50 stories up a mountain, which at the end of it, we were like, wow. (laughs) Um, So I'm doing that to stay sane. (laughs) And I'm cooking a little bit, although I've discovered that I have much more ambition to cook than I have appetite to eat. Yeah. I'm discovering I don't eat that much, so. (laughs) Maybe lunch leftovers? (laughs) Well, you know, we'll cook thing for four days because we can't eat it all and then yeah. we have not cook three more things in between because <laughs> but um you know like listening to a lot of music making some new connections to people even though it's virtually i'm connecting with all of my childhood friends here's here's actually a great story and i actually hope everyone will take this to heart because yeah. this will have a huge impact um Last week, at the beginning of the week, I reached out to one of my high school friends. I have a a group of high school friends, four of them, I think, that we are in touch pretty regularly. Okay. And we're going back to 1982 when we graduated. Yeah. And two of them moved to LA in the 90s or the the mid-80s, and two of them, well, three of them moved to LA. Yeah. One came back. So three of us are in New York now, two of us are in LA. And we have a Zoom meeting scheduled for Thursday. And I called my friend Sheila, who... um, who was telling me that her parents are, they're totally housebound and they're doing well, but her dad, her dad, who sounds amazing, her dad turned 98 mm, two days ago. Wow. My God, he turned 98. Her <laughs> mom's, you know, a youthful spring chicken at like 88. But we were talking and she said, yeah, my parents are kind of climbing the walls because they cannot go out. They can't go anywhere. It's just the two of them. My brother brings some food. But in any case, Sheila said, you know, would you call my mother? And I said to her, of course I'll call your mother. Like I grew up in her mother's house, you know, years ago. And so we decided that we were going to reach out to all of the mothers Mm. of our really close friends that we have independent relationships with. So I called my college roommate's mother and I'm going to call my best friend's mother today. And then she called my mother and and my mother (laughs) called her mother. And I mean, it's fabulous. And and so you would have never done that probably if it hadn't been for the situation. Yeah. like I'm making a hundred phone calls. It's three people or maybe yeah. four people, but there are these people who, you know, all of these women, her mother, my mother, my best friend's mother, my college roommate's mother, they're old. Like they're between 82 and 90. Yeah. And they're doing okay. But you know, for me to call my college roommate's mother, she wasn't expecting to hear from me, but yeah. she was really happy to hear from me. And I was yeah. really happy to talk to her. And it's something that we can all do. Yeah, and if one of us is calling three people, you know, yeah. four people that we know for our entire lives, yeah. that's just making their life a little bit better at a really hard time. Yeah. You know, and, and I can go out, I can take a walk, I can go to the grocery store. Mm-hmm. My mother can't. 
because yeah. she's much more vulnerable and she has to be careful to yeah. a, a degree that, you know, God forbid she should get exposed and get infected with the virus. I can't allow that to happen. And if me making a phone call to her or to my friend Sheila's father keeps yeah. him sane for three more days until <laughs> he picks up the phone, God bless. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I appreciate you. And it's kind of fun to talk yeah, to yeah. these people that have been a part of our lives. Yeah, to, to, to catch up. So, yeah. so let's, uh, you know, life can be unfair. It can be challenging, but there are also moments of joy and prosperity. And you've shared a couple of those. Mm-hmm. So as people traverse this journey we call life you know what are your words of wisdom that you would share with those you know listening or watching in on this wow that's a hard one that's like you know do i talk about <laughs> do i talk about relationships or i talk about the thing that you know the one thing or the two things or the, the three yeah. top three things that you think are most you know, important i think that we can take a lot of different lessons from this completely surreal experience we're all living mm-hmm But the most important thing is the people in your life are not. I learned last night that someone in my life died of the Mm -hmm. virus and um, an older person, but I'm super sad. I'm going to call his wife today. And I belong to the Park Slope Food Co-op, which is 17,000 members selling groceries to each other at cheap prices. We're like living in the seventies in the Park Slope Food Co-op. And I work on the same shift for 20 something years. And there's a man named Nathan who sat next to me a lot of the time. And, you know, a couple of years ago, one day we just started talking and I never really spoken to Nathan much. And I discovered that I really liked him and he really liked me and his wife, yeah. Ellen, became the leader of our shift. We, you know, every four weeks we'd all get together and work in the store and Nathan died. Mm. And I was super sad to hear that last night because he was a dear, lovely, wonderful man. And at a certain point he was able to retire from working in the store and Ellen was still working in the store and there was a jazz club across the street and Nathan would go to the jazz club on Monday nights and Ellen would be across the street working in the store and in between sets he'd come into the store and hang out with us and then he'd go back and he'd hear the second and we lost Nathan three weeks ago and you know it's like this is what is important and irreplaceable about this moment. We have to make sure we lose as few people as possible. I yeah. cannot lose my mother. I can't. I need her to be around as long as possible. Mm-hmm. I'm sure everyone feels this way about someone in their life. The point being is that the connections to people are the most important thing. To some extent, yeah. they're the only important thing. For those of us who are not worried existentially about how we're going to keep a roof over our heads and how we're going to eat, that's what matters. Yeah. And everything we do should be supporting and directed towards strengthening those situations. And they're both personal and professional. They yeah. have to do with how you sustain yourself business-wise. They have to do with how you sustain your family. I was talking to my friend last night, Joy, who, who told me about Nathan. And I, I said to her, you know, it's really obvious. It's very clarifying this moment, mm-hmm. what's important. Yeah. And what is not important falls away. It doesn't matter. And I can't tell you how easy it is. You know, you have your list of things that you want to accomplish or the Mm -hmm. list of things that you get upset about. I can't tell you how quickly that list gets short or prioritized. Mm -hmm. The stuff that just doesn't matter. It's really obvious. And I would say that the advice would be focus on the people and focus on what matters. You will know what it is. Yeah. You know what it is because when things get back to normal, there'll be time to focus on the trivial stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. That's, that's amazing. Um, but anything else that you wanted to share that you just, we, we didn't get a chance to talk about it yet. Um, Hmm. Let's see. Well, you know, the building industry, the design industry, those of us that work on the built environment, we are creative entrepreneurs. Yeah. There's a Venn diagram a lot of what we do is common to all creative entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And I think there are certainly times when you don't know what to do. You really don't know what to do and make some sort of connection to someone in your network and ask them to help make a new connection for you. Mm -hmm. Because if you keep doing that, you will figure out some things to do. Um, In the last recession, 
this is what I did. There were certain friends of mine who had lost jobs. There were certain friends of friends that I didn't know that well. And we had sort of a buddy system and we became good friends in the last recession because we were both just sort of filling our days and looking for work and trying to keep things moving. Yeah. And of that experience, some of them have become my close dear friends. Mm. And of this experience that will happen for others. Mm-hmm. You know, there are people that I relate to or participate in Zoom calls with in the Brick and Wonder network on a weekly basis or twice yeah. a week these days mm-hmm. that I didn't know very well or didn't know at all, you mm-hmm. know, a year ago. Yeah. And I'm sure some of them will be lifelong professional colleagues and collaborators. Yeah. As an example, I'm, I'm working on a development project to develop 140 units of adult 55 plus housing okay. in an urban location to give, you know, retiring baby boomers an option to downsize from a suburban single family house to an apartment in a beautiful neighborhood in an urban location that's walkable. Yeah. And a member of the Brick and Wonder Network uh, has a company that's a video company mm-hmm. and they use video to tell stories. Okay. And in particular, some of their work is towards directed towards allowing real estate developers to communicate about their projects. Mm-hmm. And I reached out to him and, and introduced him to the leader of my development team. We can't afford to hire him now. We're still pre-funding. We developed a yeah. big proposal that's going in this week. We're so psyched that we're still putting our proposal in. We're hoping <laughs> in that job um but we called this guy his name is mark slagle and we said hey mark you know we we're interested in what you do to help tell our story yeah we get to that point um i've already lost my train of thought as to why i'm telling you this so anyway i think mark slagle will become a part of my future because as a journalist and a filmmaker i relate and someone from the south who has a sensibility that is so southern (laughs) yes uh literary demeanor i don't know like (laughs) maybe that'll make sense to some of the people who are listening but i've always found that people who are from the south it's not just their voice it's their vocabulary and the way they use language and the way it comes together and tells a story there's something about that aesthetic and sensibility that to me is spot on for our development project and i'm sure that having reached out to mark because he was a part of my brick and wonder network. Yeah. Um, you wouldn't have had that if you didn't make that connection. And that's right. And yeah. he's going to be a part of my life and yeah. ideally we'll win the proposal and we'll develop the project and he will create videos for it. And <laughs> there will be many projects to follow. I mean, it's just a model. Like it's, yeah. we, we can still create in the midst of the situation we're in. Even if the thing we're creating is not going to be executed for a while. Yeah. Be prepared for when things open up. I think yeah, make big plans. Yeah. We can execute those plans later. If you don't make any plan, <laughs> we're going to first have to start to plan when we're able to start to execute. Make yeah. big plans. Yeah. Don't worry about which ones are going to go forward. Some will go forward. Yeah. Yeah. So I thank you so much for sharing your insights and, and stories and examples. Um, how can people connect with you? What are you up to? If they want to work with you, you know what they are, tell us the links, all that good stuff. Sure. So um, I would love to hear from people. I'm still pitching to clients. Um, I work in lots of different ways. So I I developed a, um, what is it, an offering for small businesses 15 years ago, whereby I will work for a small business at the hourly rate of the professionals in that business for Mm -hmm. 10 hours. Sometimes their hourly rate is significantly lower than mine. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's the same. Occasionally it's higher, although that's kind of rare. It's nice when it happens. Yeah. (laughs) But what it's saying to them is, you know, my time is worth your time. Mm -hmm. And I will give you my time for the value of your own time. Yeah. To help you get 10 hours further forward in understanding how to develop your own business. Because Mm -hmm. I find that 10 hours of basic business development skills training for someone who has never had any is tremendously profoundly empowering thing. Yeah. And it fosters community and it makes good things happen. And at that point, often it builds a relationship that then leads to a client relationship at my regular hourly rates. And I'm more than happy to put that out yeah. there. Um, not entirely pro bono, but sometimes at a deeply discounted rate. Yeah. That's something I like to put out there. Um, people can connect to me through my website, clapelconsulting.com. Okay. 
Okay. Um, and then ideally, people can connect to me through Brick and Wonder. We are relaunching the Brick and Wonder website actually this week. Okay. And this is a public website. We have a sort of founders and members section that's been up and running for a long time, but we've just completely rethought the public facing stuff to attract new members and to make people who are not yet a part of the curated invited network um, familiar with everything that we're doing. Yeah. So, and, and I would be happy to speak with anyone who's interested in Brick and Wonder. As a founder, it's part of my mandate is to bring yeah. some new members into the network. We're primarily creatives focused on the building industry, but that encompasses furniture makers and artists and building materials manufacturers and developers and real estate brokers and architects and engineers and builders and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's another way. And through, through your website and through the mutual aid circle, mm. At Trupo and the Freelancers Union because it's important to point out that that's where all this started. You know, we would not have met if not for that call last week, yeah. which is purely about, you know, thinking, okay, what do I have to offer yeah. to my community? And to an extent, the Freelancers Union is, my, is a part of my community. Mm -hmm. What can I put out there for my yeah. community knowing that at some point I'm going to need something that someone else is putting out there? Yeah. yeah and we, we need each other more than ever. We do. Yeah. So, you know, I hope to be doing a Zoom meeting or seminar or something. I don't know how they're going to pull it together. I know it's underway. I just don't know the details that uh, allows people to begin their own orientation and how to advocate on their own behalf. Yeah. How do you do business development for your organization? Whatever it is, whether you're a journalist or an architect or a food manufacturer or a marketing consultant, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, I appreciate it. And, uh, that's all I have. Any, any final, final words before we close um, it out here? Words. Well, first <laughs> off, thank you. I mean, this has been really fun. It's been a great way to spend a little over an hour. Yeah. It's been nice to get me out of my own world yeah. somewhat. <laughs> really positive stuff at a moment when there's no such thing as too much of that. It's a great opportunity to connect to my own audience and new audiences yeah. through your network. Um, it's a great opportunity to talk about my high school friends and yeah. how we're all friends to each other's mothers. <laughs> encourage everybody, call your friends mothers. Yes. They'll be yes. really tight and you might even have a few things to laugh about. Um, I guess that's it. And, right. you know, I hope we have an opportunity to talk again, whether it's just chatting as colleagues or something else, or if, if you want to send someone in my direction that I could help. Yeah. It's not on a client basis, please do. Yeah. And um, I guess that's it. Sounds good. Well, it's great talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks. You too. For additional stories and systems to work smarter and live better, visit jasonscottmontoya.com. That's jasonscottmontoya.com. Thank you for joining us on this episode, and we look forward to having you listen in to the next episode of Grow Your Life.